The Antidote is here with Dave Elkins, lead vocalist for a pair of bands, May and Schematic. Dave, really, this seriously, this is a treat to have you on The Antidote. Hey, it's my pleasure, man. Thanks for having me. Is it okay if I admit that I'm, I'm not quite on the verge, but I'm almost there of being a fanboy? Ooh, okay, well, uh... That sounds a little creepy, no, let's just, <laughs> let's just, let's just leave it at a fan. Okay, yeah, yeah, when you put boy after it and you make it one word, it sort of turns into a... Into a whole creepy kind of thing. It, it changes the, uh, the semantic of the whole thing, to say the least. But yeah, I appreciate it very much, thank you. How about giving us the roots of May? I mean, how did all of you guys come together to create the band? Yeah, um, back in 2001, actually, uh, New Year's on 2000, 1999 into 2000, Jacob Marshall, May's drummer and I, we were uh, down in Nagshead, North Carolina, um, at a beach house with a bunch of our friends. Just coincidentally, uh, we weren't friends yet, but we ended up striking a conversation that lasted several hours. I played him a bunch of music from bands and artists I was listening to, and you know, I had I'd been in a bunch of garage and high school bands growing up, and I told him what was missing from my life as far as you know what I wanted to do in music. Um, all those other bands just weren't giving me the opportunity. And uh, he was a dreamer himself and wanted to play music, wanted to play drums uh, in a band for a living, if possible. And, you know, growing up in Virginia Beach, Virginia, it's not like a Chicago or an L.A. or New York City, you know, some of these these bigger cities where um, music is essentially, you know, maybe a small part, but still a part of the economy. So uh, it was sort of unbelievable for us growing up that we could be in these bands, but Interestingly enough, both his dad and mine were both in bands um, that had some success, you know, back in the late 70s, um, early 80s. And so we had sort of in our lineage, like a history of, you know, wanting it and pursuing it, you know, so much that it actually happened. We were both passionate about music. We're both passionate about um, people. We're both passionate about um, you know, the power of music as, as communication um, with those that you've, you know, essentially never met. And so that night, we listened to music for hours and we, um, you know, just kind of dreamed up our individual and all of a sudden it seemed like our collective dream that would become May. You know, from then on, we just started to uh, hang. I was in college. Uh, we both went to Old Dominion University and I'd go over to his apartment after I'd get out of class, and we'd just keep doing the same thing, just listening to music, and uh, eventually I started bringing some songs that I was writing to him, and, uh, you know, it took a very long time, because uh, Mark Paget, our bass player, mm-hmm. he has one of the only studios in Virginia Beach, maybe one of three or so, and uh, he had recorded the band I was in at the time called Sky's the Limit, and he said, hey man, next time you want to record something, it's on me. And uh, he said, you just have to be flexible with my schedule, obviously, because it's going to be a free project for you. And so anytime I'm not working, you know, I'll invite you to come to the studio and record what you're working on. Wow. So over the course of uh, 2000 and through 2001, uh, I'd get into the studio about once a month and just record, you know, until he said, you know, time's up. Uh, We'll get back to it as soon as possible. And Mark became our bass player. We were we were like a worship band at our church. So before uh, and after services or rehearsals, we would then kind of work on what became May. 
And uh, so we'd be in the sanctuary, we'd be rehearsing these songs, and um, then we'd get into the studio and start recording. So it was sort of backwards where, you know, a lot of bands will write a few songs, practice in a space, and then get their first show together, you know, invite their friends out, try to play another show, play as many shows as, as they can until they make enough money um, or save enough money through the jobs that the band members all have to save up some cash and get into the studio and record. Well, we performed our first show after we had recorded an EP's worth of material. <laughs> um, and we ended up playing no more than probably 10 to 15 shows before we were signed to Tooth & Nail. And we were uh, you know, with an agent, with a manager. And when we finally hit the road in, in January of 2003, before our first record, Destination Beautiful, came out, um, we didn't even come home until June. So, you know, it was a wonderful experience and it was sort of not the one that you, uh, you know, formulate in your head when you're thinking, well, I'm going to take a stab at trying to be in a band and, and do it this way. We did it quite the opposite. We recorded a record, we gave it to Tooth & Nail, they put it out like a few months later and we just started touring the country and, and in turn touring the world. You were really on the fast track, but of course you said about your dad, so I guess you were genetically destined to be able to do this. I kind of feel that way. Um, Some of my earliest childhood memories, I remember my mom uh, picking me up and dancing with me in the living room to Thriller uh, by (laughs) Michael Jackson. And, uh, you know, that record came out in 82, which is the year I was born. So um, it it couldn't have been, you know, too long after um, that album came out. That's one of my earliest childhood memories. She used to sit with me in the den and um, play piano with me. My mom played piano growing up. So I had, uh, you know, you know, both parents uh, musical, my dad even more so. And, you know, at a very young age, music just hit me in a place where I connected with it. Like, you know, all of us do in some ways, but this was like, I remember doing things like uh, some of my favorite band's lyrics, like writing them down on paper just so I could look at them and see them in my own handwriting. Because I wasn't a songwriter by any means yet, but I wanted to be. So like, I would sort of, emulate these things or, or pretend or even dream these things up when I was probably like 11 and 12 years old, just just wanting that to be a way that I could self-express. I was a, I was a drummer in my first band when I was 14, almost 15, played bass in my second band uh, and sang a little bit of backup vocals and then played guitar and sang some lead vocals in my third band and then my fourth band, which is the one right before May. That's when uh, I was pretty much writing most of it, uh, playing guitar, and, you know, I was the lead singer. So um, this was an interesting way to grow up musically. It's not like I was destined to be a lead singer of a band, or um, in one sense, I I guess I was. Um, I just wanted to be a part of it. I wanted to be a part of music. I wanted to be a part of the creative process of music. And what I didn't know, um, I was willing to learn in any way, shape, or form. I never really had any lessons um, in any instrument, but as soon as my grandparents bought me my first guitar, I grabbed a a chord book at the music store and just started teaching myself enough to where I could start playing along to some of the songs that I listened to on the radio. And, and you know, I was one of those kids who would play sports in school and... um, you know, enjoyed school quite a bit, but then I started moving around uh, a lot. 
like in middle school and high school, I actually went to um, two different middle schools and three different high schools. And music was sort of like, it became that friend that I didn't have in school anymore because I was having to, to switch around so much. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, when you're that age, formulative years, when you're sort of trying to figure out who you are and it matters to you what other people think about you and, um, you know, you, you want to belong and you also want to have your own identity. Music was something that was pulling that out of me uh, before I was knowledgeable enough to respond to music. And then as soon as I could, I just I just kind of ran with it. And um, and that what got me to where I met Jacob years later and was sort of ready to, to go on that May journey. Well, you talk about the May journey, but what came first? I know the May is an acronym. And of course, I'll let you explain it. Did the acronym come first, or did the music come first? Yeah, actually, the acronym did, and that was what was another thing that bonded Jacob and I. Is um, He was at school. He's a few years older than me, and so he was a senior in college when I was a freshman, and he was, uh, through interdisciplinary studies, developing his own major, um, studying aesthetic theory. So, you know... Um, what is beauty, how we perceive it differently, um, and especially how do we perceive music? How does it affect our senses? He did some of these really fascinating studies when he was in college, like uh, Rorschach testing, you know, like ink blot testing. He would um, basically, you know, maybe pick about 30 different uh, ink blot cards or images and he would play music like classical music in a major key, say G major Mm -hmm. and have these people, you know, write down what they saw in these images. And then he would wait one year and then he'd go back to them, show them the same images. So they had enough time, you know, to forget what they saw. And then he would play classical music in G minor. Hmm. And what they would see would be different. Whereas when it was in a major key, they would see a, butterfly and when it was in a minor key they would see a bat um you know some of these things uh he also interviewed people that had perfect pitch and he would play music for them and they had like this form of synesthesia where their their senses would sort of uh affect the others um so they would listen to music and they would tell jacob what colors they saw in their mind yes and uh, then you would interview someone else, and I mean, it would be down to like a bluish, uh, brownish orange. And then someone else would see the exact same color that we know at that perfect pitch. And so that was what Jacob was studying in college, and it was really interesting to him. And of course, um, I grew up in this, this whole emo scene, and in high school, I was listening to a lot of emo bands that they were sort of neglecting traditional song structures and they were uh, going for, you know, instead of maybe like a verse, chorus, verse, chorus, bridge, chorus, writing something that specifically would take you on an emotional journey or the the musical parts were written to self-express almost more than they were to traditionally execute a song. And so I was really interested in just like a different approach to how you can self-express, how you can um, you know, musically paint a picture or write a story. I always loved it when um, certain theatrics and music, you know, going all the way back to growing up on classic rock, you know, like uh, Sgt. Pepper's by the Beatles or Abbey Road, some of these Led Zeppelin records, some of these conceptual records 
I always loved records, period, that I could start on track one and just let play from start to finish. And in my own way, that's that's something that either I, I didn't realize or I knew, but didn't know how it, it could happen uh, so beautifully, you know, that, that music could just kind of take me out of my real world and, and kind of put me on a on a path and just let me dream and let me escape, let me uh, feel sadness and feel joy and so in love with music um even though we had two different approaches um the sentiment was the same anyway may stands multi-sensory aesthetic experience you know for years in may that that really didn't have an effect on our show but what jacob wanted was someday to sort of create this space where you're being hit with essentially every sense um in the form of art. So musically obviously is affecting your ears and they, there would be a visual component and that would affect your eyes. And, um, if there was something to touch, if there was something to smell, if there was something to taste, mm-hmm. uh, that would be, if you get, if you get hit all five, then that was really going to, uh, make Jacob's accomplishment, you know, come to life. And, uh, you know, I think it was like in 2008, maybe two, no, it was 2009, we get to a point in our set uh, live where you'd walk in to the door at the venue and you'd be given a pair of May 3 glasses. And um, during our show, um, as you'd be watching um, video content the whole time, uh, there'd be a part in one of our longer songs, for example, this song we have called The Fight Song. Um, you'd be listening to the song, video would be playing almost the entire time, and it would tell you, you know, now put on your three glasses. You put them on. You'd be in the middle of a rainstorm and like tornadoes and wind clouds and thunder and lightning, or not thunder, but lightning are coming at you. And we would place uh, high-powered uh, industrial fans in the room. And even though if you walked by one, you'd see it, you might not pay attention to it. And we'd get a lot of our May fans to, to commit ahead of time, and we would give them uh, spray water bottles. And so you'd be, if you just were a casual fan, you didn't know what was about to happen, you would have 3D images at you while we're playing like minute and a half long guitar solo in, in the song. And then it would start to get wind and it would start to rain inside of the venue. <laughs> and so, and if you bought an EP at the, uh, at the merch table and you rubbed it, or if you just played it in your car and then you took it out and smelled it, it was sort of like a scratch and sniff sticker on the, on the cover of the CDs. We had morning, afternoon and evening that all came out in 2009 and each disc uh, limited edition had a scent to it. So uh, towards the end of, of May's run, um, you know, we were really starting to just kind of touch on that stuff. We still didn't even come close to what I, I know Jacob would love to accomplish. Um, but his interest in that of art and the expression of art and the experience was something that was really exciting to me to have someone that was so passionate about, you know, how art affected the senses and a person. And so, um, you know, that was one of the main things that, that bonded us right off the bat. Do you find it difficult, though, because May had so many really talented musicians, but, like, did that make the songwriting process easier or did it make it more difficult? I think that it would be fair to say that it was a little bit of both. Um, you know, I was, I was 20 years old when our first record came out. I'm 32 now. And when you're 20 years old and, and you're a songwriter, when people are telling you that what you're doing is good, 
when you you know bounce around a lot, like I said, I did in in, in high school, and, uh, you know, kind of came from a, a broken family as well. Where I was um, had a very uh, sensitive ego, so it was really hard when I would write something that someone didn't like. And so when I wrote something and someone did like it, I felt like I had to protect it. I had to um, make sure that it was mine. And um, so I think that a lot of immaturity and a lot of um, insecurity for me when I would be writing uh, with these great musicians, I would sort of almost dictate, uh, which is unfortunate, like right off the bat, I guess is what I mean. Like, hey, Rob, mm-hmm. you're the keys player. This is the melody. You can play it much better than I can. You play this. Jacob, this is the drum part. I was a drummer in my first band. You try to play this. And so the other half of it is that when we were recording Destination Beautiful, our first record, we only would have like one weekend or a couple of days in the studio. So we really had to be prepared. And as much as we were able to rehearse, um, sometimes we, we wouldn't know that we were going to walk into the studio and record for two days until like, you know, 24 to 48 hours before we were actually in there. So the the process starting the band was not as collaborative as a lot of bands can be. Um, it was more just, uh, this is the song structure. Um, if you have any ideas, feel free to bring them. But if you don't, I've already got them. And we can kind of take it from here. And then as the band grew, a lot changed about that um, collaborative process. I mean, Rob is uh, the best uh, keys player I've ever I've ever played with. Um, piano, you know, organ, Fender Rhodes, etc., synth mm-hmm. keys. Mm-hmm. And um, he wrote a lot of music towards the end of his run with May. Um, but if I were to tell you, like, example of a song, you'd be like, I don't even hear any keys on it. It'd be really interesting because he'd write the song on keys, but he'd be like, and it's supposed to, like, this is the guitar part, and it's going to sound like this. Uh, basically, you would expect the keys player to be, if he's writing more music, it's going to be more keys heavy. And um, at that time, that wasn't the case. So it's a long-winded way to say that I don't believe that May has truly written a collection of music that just allows everyone to to shine in their musicianship and be in their own element as individuals within a group, self-expressed through music the way that uh, the way that I believe that we were born to do together. Um, which, on one hand, is frustrating because you know, I mean we're getting back together and we're playing old songs. Mm-hmm. But you better believe that when we get together and we, we do spend time in the studio, it's all about understanding. I think we all agree wholeheartedly that that's never been the case and that uh, the possibilities of, of a true collaboration musically are more exciting for us than they've ever been because the maturity level has increased and in our care for each other, our concern for each other, our ability to understand our weaknesses more than our strengths. Um, so that way we know that there's someone else that can cover a weakness with, you know, one of his strengths. Um, those are some of the things that when you're 20 years old, and um, as soon as the, the machine starts turning the gears and you're just out there promoting music and playing every night and getting ready for a follow-up record and shooting a music video and photo shoots and et cetera, um, for me, I wasn't at a place where I was able to handle that load and make sure that all five of us were well well represented musically. So, you know, in little pockets we did, but as a whole, I think that the musicianship of the band um, is still yet to 
fully be discovered in terms of how it makes May songs, period. Meaning that you are planning a future for May because you guys had gone on hiatus. Because your last recording was what, 09? Yeah, it was. Um, 09, what's really cool is that, um, you know, Rob and Mark both left the band in 2007, uh, maybe early 2008. And so Zach, Jacob, and I kept on with May until 2010, and 2009 was our last release, and we did a farewell tour in 2010. Uh, not saying that we're breaking up, but just saying that going to hang it up for a little while, and uh, we're going to start investing into our more of our personal lives and the families that some of us were starting, and we've since moved. Uh, Zach was born in Florida, now lives in Virginia. I was born in Virginia, now live in Nashville, and Jacob was born in Virginia, now lives in Brooklyn. Um, you know, we really wanted to invest in other things and members leave and as start kind of flipping through the labels of your career that, you know, you've released music on, um, you start to kind of lose a sense of, of what success is. And, uh, we were managing ourselves. We had started a label of our own. We had just really exhausted ourselves completely. Wow. To take that break, but we also wanted to ask the guys, Mark and Rob, to come back with us to do our farewell. And they agreed. And as we were putting the final touches on our last EP, Evening, uh, we wrote one song together. And that was the first time where just freedom to, to express, freedom to create, and like a vision was, um, we knew what we were going to write. That song, Bloom, uh, we listen to it and we perform it now, um, as we just did for a Stage It show, an online uh, webcasted show that we did a few weeks ago. Um, that's like a moment where we created something a as a unit that we all believe in. You know, like the lyrics were written by all of us. The, the musical parts were written by all of us. Um, there was just a freedom and a comfort, a sanctuary, I guess, within the band that, that we had when we started. And that's how we ended um, our, our May run back in 2010 was by listening to a song that we had just written together on, on the eve of our farewell and thought, oh man, there's, there's something very genuine and powerful here that is stronger than anything that we've ever done. And we're realizing this as we say goodbye to May for a while. And so that was obviously bittersweet, but it kept that door open. You know, we're available to be tugged on when a moment such as now has arrived and there is a feeling in May that, you know, beyond just this tour, um, if there is another life to May that we have no idea what the possibilities are creatively because, um, you know, we still had never reached our, our fullest potential as a, as a songwriting unit. Let me take you back to the past a little bit. You had mentioned earlier in our conversation about a conceptual album. When you did the Everglow, I consider it to be the best concept album I've ever heard. <laughs> Thanks. But did you design the Everglow as a conceptual album? Well, at, at first we didn't. Um, we were just writing songs, you know, um, on tour, on, on breaks from tour, very, very short breaks from tour. Um, we would, uh, you know, write a song and get it well enough long to where we could include it into our set on our next tour. And a lot of these tours we were supporting acts. So we wouldn't be playing for an hour and 15 minutes. We'd be playing for 30 minutes. So to introduce a new song in a set where you're trying to win over new fans because, you know, the headlining band is the one that is bringing most of these people into the club, um, 
you're taking a risk, but these songs were identifying with people and um, that was exciting for us. So we would keep at it, keep at it, just like anyone would when they're, you know, writing their follow-up record. And it was about halfway through the process that I was realizing that if you put these songs in a particular order, they were kind of telling the story of the dream coming true for, for me, for Jacob and I, and I'm, you know, I'm certain for the five of us that we were actually playing music as our career. We were um, meeting people where they were and our music was having impact on them the same way that music was having impact on me when I was younger. I was in the studio just last week and with a band. I said, I love music. And it's just like, kind of like a silly thing to say, but you know, after doing it for professional about 12 years, and to say that regularly, I think, is, is such a, an amazing and, and powerful thing. Because I know a lot of people can get jaded once what they love becomes what they do for a living. And, uh, you know, at, at this point in May's career, um, we were just so in awe of the fact that we were, you know, bouncing from city to city and tour to tour. And we were now making our second record. And um, the dream was alive and it was very true. So if you put the songs in a particular order, it could talk about being in a place of um, wonder and expectation to going through some self-realization, some highs and definitely some lows. And then on the other side, realizing that, in fact, the dream did come true. And it's just, you know, it's just a thing where anyone, whether they play music for a living or, you know, they, they just need an hour and 15 minutes worth of motivation to understand that. You know, what you want out of your life, what you believe in for yourself, it's all possible. It's all in front of you. You know, you have to go out there and, and make it happen at times. And, you know, sometimes there's a little bit of fate involved. And sometimes there's a whole lot of you making it happen involved. And um, this was the case as we were understanding who we were individually and, and as May. And so about halfway through the process, we said, well, let's, you know, let's do something a little different. Let's, uh, Let's tell this story. And um, I, I remember learning how to read at a young age with books on tape. And uh, these Disney books where you put a tape in the cassette player and um, you'd read along and the narrator at the beginning would say, you'll know it's time to turn the page when you hear the chimes ring like this. And it would play that chime. And then if you, you know, if you were learning how to read but you didn't understand all the words, then that would get you to the next page. And um, so I just love that. And it was such a vivid memory. In my mind, growing up, I thought, well, let's just do like this conceptual record. It's like a book on tape, and we'll make it so not only is there a story that's told throughout the journey of the record, but the artwork will then fit in a greater way. And this was in 2004 that we were recording this record and writing these songs. Right. Um, and so it was like this pivotal moment where digital was starting to, um, you know, creep in and. Records were being pirated, and um, you know people were starting to write more for iTunes and single worthy. And we were writing, you know, in our mind singles, but we wanted to make an album that would sort of stand the test of this digital age and this digital movement that was coming in and making uh, full length albums just less significant. So for all of the different reasons and all of the different influences that were swirling in and around what we were doing, where we we decided to run with it. And the producer of the Everglow, Ken Andrews, um, he was in a band called Failure back in the 90s that I was a big fan of and a few of, of May's uh, members were fans of as well. Mm -hmm. And uh, they were like a very spacey, sort of avant-garde, alternative, heavy hard rock band. And Failure had a record called Fantastic Planet. 
And um, that was a very sort of conceptual record. It had segues and, um, you know, ebbs and flows to it that, you know, you had to experience from start to finish. And so when we were able to secure Ken as our producer, I knew that he would be into this idea based on what he had done in his previous band, you know, over a decade earlier. And so just worked out. And some of the pieces didn't fall in line until the very last minute. I mean, the whole, uh, you'll know it's time to turn the page when you hear this sound and welcome to the Everglow by May. That was uh, read by Ken's wife. Oh. And and that, that happened like, you know, that was one of the very last things that we recorded. Rob wrote that piano part and she spoke over top of it. And that was like, we got to go home because our time in the studio is, is over. But let's just finally do this last thing. So we were all just sort of, wondering up until you know the very last minute if this was going to come together well as a concept and the artwork you know we had ideas for the artwork um we hired um through our label um what were they called back then are they called like squad studios or um they're called invisible creature now oh yes um, okay. uh yeah and so um they did obviously an amazing job on the artwork and making it feel like a, a storybook almost for children um, but having like a sense of maturity and depth to it and almost like a darkness at times. It's just kind of one of those things where the, the whole is greater than the sum of its parts and um, it, it worked out. And, uh, you know, some of it was very intentional. Obviously, some of it was just we're writing songs or making a new record. And some of it was people outside with, uh, with greater skill and, you know, their own sense of creativity coming alongside and helping May's vision. I've met with several artists who've cited May as being a big influence to their music. And I mean, I have one vocalist in particular who said that your album, The Everglow, motivated him to write music with a purpose. But, wow. when, but when you're actually doing the recording, did you envision the album having that kind of an impact on people? You know, I, I want to say yes because I believed in it so strongly. And, um, you know, May was essentially the only part of my life at that point. I mean, we played 300 shows a year for the first two years that we were a band. So there was never a time to sort of decompress from May. May was everything in those couple of years leading up to recording the Everglow. Um, But then, you, you know, I mean, you dream it up and you believe in it. And, you know, when you go on tour, you open up for bands that, um, have more fans than you, and you just believe, well, you know, once we put out this new music, like, I believe that all these these people in this room are going to be fans of, of our record, and I believe that these songs will have impact on them the same way that songs have had impact on me in my life and have, you know, shaped and molded and changed me over the years. And then, and then on the other hand, you just, you can't understand it at all. Even after you've lived through it, you still don't understand it, because there's certain parts of it that you know, people who will comment on our Facebook page, you know, I just, we just had our daughter and we named her May. And, uh, you know, here's a tattoo of artwork from the Everglow or here's a tattoo of lyrics from the Everglow or I'm walking down the aisle to a song off the Everglow. Um, our first dance is, is to a May song. You know, these things, like you just can't believe them even when they're being told to you. And even if you do believe them, you don't fully comprehend the impact that you have on other people's lives where they make their lives and your music the soundtrack for their lives in such a powerful way. And, uh, you know, when I got married in, in 09, I, I put my reception playlist together with my wife. And, 
you know, there's certain songs that we that we dance to and other people dance to. And I mean, she walked down the aisle to a song that I wrote. And so I, I get it. And yet I, I don't. I, you know, I'm detached from these people's lives until they make us so. And I think that's just something that I'll never fully grasp. And I'm hoping that when we do these Everglow dates next year, that we can just take full advantage of the opportunity to understand and hear these people's stories. So that way it can really sink in, um, you know, the effect that our music has fortunately made on other people's lives. So you're going to be playing some dates as May? Yes. Um, right now, um, we have only three dates in the Northeast, um, New York City, Philadelphia, and Norfolk, which is uh, our hometown venue in Virginia. Okay. Um, and we will be adding dates throughout the year. Um, since we all live in different parts of the country right now, um, and we all have full-time jobs, or um, like Zach, our guitar player, is pursuing his master's degree right now, I've uh, got a studio out here that I work and produce out of on a regular basis, and we all have different things going on. So we're trying to be sensitive to everyone's individual lives and families and things like that, as we're also trying to, uh, you know, give people all over the country and then and in many parts of the world is we can be invited to play. Um, we want to, you know, play this record from start to finish. So right now we do we do have these three dates. It's the first week of January. And uh, we're getting offers from promoters on a regular basis. We're, you know, planning our schedules uh, through the entire 2015 year. Wow. Uh, you know, to make this tour um, reach as many people as want to see it and um, want to experience it. And still we're about six months out from our first show. So, um, you know, we're carefully constructing the show and the production. And, you know, even though we're playing the record from start to finish, there are to be elements of surprise um, within the set that, you know, we can still, uh, put out there for people. So, um, you know, we're going to be, uh, more involved and, in, and this tour will be more crafted in creating an experience, a truly May multi-sensory aesthetic experience as we can put together. And it starts next year. Looking forward. Now you're going to have to promise me though, you're going to play Toronto. Ooh. You're going to have to come to the great white North. Well, if we if we don't, would Detroit be a possibility for you? Is that close enough? Or well, it's about five six hours away. Yeah, we really should. I mean, May did not get a chance to play Canada as often as as we wanted to. We we played on other people's tours more than we played our our own headlining shows up there. But um, there is definitely a, a Canadian fan base that may has that we really want to connect with. So if we get the opportunity to play Toronto, I'm, I'm all about it. Canadian border crossing for artists coming North. It's a tough deal. Heading South, heading to the States. It's not a big deal for us. True. Yeah. Yeah. It's, yeah. it's our, it's our wonderful government. They make it difficult. <laughs> well, I mean, I've, I've definitely had a few amazing experiences in Canada on tour, uh, warp tour in 2004, uh, we, we played a few shows up there in 2005. Uh, I think we at least played one or two. Um, yeah, I mean, I, uh, I shipped some vinyl packages, uh, in the last few days, several times over to, uh, Canadian friends. So I hope that I get to connect, uh, with May and Canada together. The antidote is speaking with Dave Elkins of May and Schematic 
Okay, Dave, let's switch over to your latest project, Schematic. You've had yeah. two releases, uh, the Fluorescent EP in 2012 and uh, your full-length color in Inside the Lines last year. Obviously, Dave, you're a really distinctive vocalist, so a bit of main sound is going to be noticeable. But mm. how does the music of Schematic differ from that of May? Well, being... Uh carefully shown respect to my work with May and to the fans that May collected and um, had relationship with over the years. When I started working on Schematic, I wanted to give people something different on purpose. I've lived out here in Nashville for three and a half years. And when I moved here, uh, my wife and I moved directly into a studio. So we lived where I worked and as soon as we could move out of where I worked, you know, our bedroom became another room for recording. <laughs> so I spent every day literally in the studio and it was a learning season for me. It was a, a time of experimentation. Um, as you learn, you know, like when I write a song on guitar, um, I'm used to that. It's what I've been doing for years. When I sit down on the piano and write, it's a, it's a whole new experience because I can play the same chords on the guitar and maybe not be moved by them, but there's something about the challenge and the learning experience that allows me to like find new life in the learning process as it relates to a musical instrument. And the studio is its own musical instrument. And uh, so I started uh, in 2011, um, just woke up every morning and walked across the hall and started, you know, fiddling around with uh, the microphones, the uh, software and the instruments. And um, it was just a season of me to, to learn and get creative and think outside of the box, uh, my box, and carefully and sort of like the way May did in 2002, creating Destination Beautiful. It was like in between projects that I was hired to work on, I just start to get lost in my own my own creativity and and my own education of of the studio and the instruments I was uh, I had around the studio and just started to record stuff. And um, so when these when these songs started to come together, there was definitely a sense of well, this is my first representation outside of May, so I want it to be comfortable for people who are May fans that would be interested in listening to this. Uh, this song or this EP or this full-length record. But then also, um, I want to extend myself and I want to showcase some of the things that I've learned in the last, uh, you know, several sometimes days or weeks, months, even years, um, away from May. And so these two releases, the EP and, and the full-length, um, you can pick one song, or I would pick one song, and I'd, I'd play it for a May fan that never heard of Schematic, and they'd say, is this a May song? And uh, then I'd play another song and they said, well, I know that's your voice, but this doesn't sound like May at all. And I really wanted to go as far as I could away from May in another sense. So that way there was a dis distinguishable sense between the two projects, even though my voice would carry on both. Sure. And I wanted to just continue to learn. I mean, I'm talking about learning how to switch keys in the middle of a song and how to change time signatures uh, in the middle of the song. I mean, I played drums on about 80% of the record. I played keys on about 80% of the record. Uh, you know, two instruments that in May, I mean, May's drummer and uh, Jacob and Rob, our keys player, they're phenomenal musicians. So I could always rely on them 
And now it was up to me to figure out how to, you know, vividly paint that picture. Yeah. Um, and then, of course, just my musical tastes have changed over the years. I mean, you wouldn't hear a song, I don't believe, you might hear maybe one or two songs that you could say, oh, that kind of reminds me of Destination Beautiful by May. But a lot of this is like, this doesn't sound uh, like even late May. Um, or maybe someone would say, well, this does sound like some of the later May stuff where you guys got to be a little more experimental and you can tell that your musicianship has grown. And, you know, when you live in Nashville, you're surrounded by a community of musicians. You're surrounded by an economy of music business. It's all around uh, the city. And so, you know, I mean, right now while we're talking, I'm sure that hundreds of songs are being written right now in my town. And there's an excitement about that. And there's also... Um, you know, when you think about like how the Everglow was a conceptual record about understanding your purpose and growing to the task, this is like a new way uh, of me going through that process individually where I'm understanding, well, you've moved to Nashville. Uh, in Virginia, you were a big fish, May, in a small pond. And now you're just another one of the people trying to make it with a musical career. And yours is going to be now more production and engineering and songwriting and co-writing and soundtracks, things like that. Mm -hmm. um, how are you going to like put your own stamp on what you do? And so I was like, well, let me just get in the studio often and create and just see where it takes me. And schematic was that for me. Um, you know, at times I, I didn't think any of the stuff would be released and then and some moments I'd be like, well, okay, now I know that this is going to be a record, so let's write a song that sits like at track number seven that feels like this. And um, so in going in both directions, you know, just sort of uh, aimlessly creating and sometimes very crafted, considerable creation, you know, kind of push this thing along. Uh, it's a little more uh, groove intensive. Uh, there's a lot of emphasis on groove. Sometimes it's a little, a little melancholy. Um, sometimes on, on the flip side, it's, it's very bright and real and organic and uplifting. And it has, it, as I tend to do, I guess, almost every time that I, I write and it's for more than one song, I try to fill in gaps. So you have like this journey that tells the story of kind of, for me, where I am and hopefully will relate to people uh, as far as, you know, how we're making sense of life. And that's exactly what Color Inside the Lines is for me. It's sort of just a, a, a new like journal entry uh, for me uh, about how things are progressing in my life and what I understand and what I don't understand and how to love. And when you think you're loving, you're doing it selfishly. And so you need to take a step back and try again. Yeah. And, uh, you know, so, so some lyrical concepts on the record are a, a bit deeper. And, you know, when you're 20 and you're writing and you're 31 at the time and you're writing, uh, your perspective, you know, as it should, it changes a little bit. And um, so there was a lot of self-expressing for me in this schematic project, both musically and lyrically. But schematic's not simply just a band. There's more to this. Yeah, there's a whole lot more to it. In fact, um, the reason why I ended up calling my solo uh, musical project schematic is because I wanted to drive people to one brand, one name. And this is uh, this is extremely long-winded, as if I haven't already been long-winded enough. But um, <laughs> sch schematic was birthed out of the end of 2009, 2010, the the end of a season of May, where I mentioned before we were managing, we were labeling, 
uh, ourselves. We were uh, producing ourselves. We were funding our recordings. We were doing everything in-house. And, you know, I mentioned that that was exhausting because, you know, when five members become three, when you no longer have a manager, you no longer rely on an attorney for everything, uh, you don't have a business manager, when your group or your crew shrinks and you have to um, maintain the speed of, of your band and, frankly, your business, um, what roles are you going to take on, you know, to fill in those gaps? At the exact same time, you know, technology and social networking is um, evolving and people are using Facebook and Twitter and Instagram and, you know, different methods to quickly communicate with their fans. I mean, in 2002, when we were getting started, I mean, MySpace wasn't even a, uh, you know, outlet for, for our band. It might have existed in beta form or something at that point, but it wasn't something that we even, you know, could process is this is a way that we can connect with our fans and we can, you know, directly share with them our content. These, these ideas were foreign. And so May lived in this very interesting time where I remember uh, back in 05, we took out Circus Survive and Mute Math on our headlining tour. It was so strange to me that Mute Math didn't have a website, that their website was their MySpace page. And I was just like, whoa, whoa, how come this band doesn't have a website? Every band's supposed to have a website. They just have their MySpace page and that's it? Well, it's like they understood that MySpace at that particular moment was bigger than, you know, a band's need to have their own personal website. And so they just said, well, let's not make people go to two different places. Let's just meet them where we all know they're going to be anyway. Yeah. And it took me a minute to understand it. But once I did, it was like a light bulb went on and I was realizing that, well, the way that things have been done for years, they're truly not going to be done this way anymore. And if we can understand what the future of technology holds, if we can understand what the future of the music business and the industry holds, if we can understand that it's a lot simpler in some cases, or it's a lot more meaningful in some cases when you directly connect to your fans and that these methods are being created to do so, that is the future of success in the creative arts and in the music community and industry. And um, schematic is, you know, by definition means a plan or a diagram. Right. And what I envision for schematic in the future is this community where education is easily found, where networking is curated on a, on a regular basis, receiving emails or notifications from schematic that allow you to understand how close you are to someone in, in your city or in your proximity who is creative just like you, uh, understanding what your needs are and where other creatives near you can facilitate your needs. We're, we're still in proof of concept phase, but schematic would be sort of like a LinkedIn meets uh, a Kickstarter meets a lynda.com meets um, a Facebook for musicians and creatives. So you could go on there as, say, like an amateur photographer. And we would love to have like a photography-based month where all amateur photographers will be invited to 
um, ask questions as we're going to have a panel of professional photographers that you have told us that you would like to learn from. Mm-hmm. And they'll come on and they'll talk about like how they got started and what kind of software they use and what kind of cameras they use and lenses and how they get the best work and, you know, how they got their first job and all these things that, you know, amateurs need to understand. And then you can hear from someone who's been in the industry as it's changed as it pertains to photography. Do the same thing with web design, with uh, creative writing, with songwriting, with audio engineering, with production, etc., and what you would do is you would come to Schematic, you'd be able to submit your work. Uh, we're going to help you um, land connections with, with people who need what you provide and vice versa. We're going to have healthy competitions where you're going to compete against other you know, photographers, audio engineers, songwriters. We're going to have rewards, uh, reward packages built in. And of course, you're going to have the opportunity to learn from professionals that you admire and respect that have paved the way in front of you. And it's just sort of to be this community of dots connected, um, education received, and hopefully we can be part of a clear understanding of where uh, the creative industry is going moving forward. And um, we can be a valuable player within the industry. And it's just about us helping all of the talent navigate its way in a business sense. Because, you know, there's certain things that I've learned over the years when it comes to the contracts that I signed with the labels that May worked with, um, the managers we had, the publishing deals we signed or didn't sign. Um, you know, when, when you start in a shed in 2002 and... You record your first record for free, and then a label says, we're not going to own your masters. We're going to license the masters from you, and then after five years, you own your masters outright. What does that mean? That means that after five years, every time that May sells a song or a record uh, stamped Destination Beautiful, uh, we make 100% of the profits from that record. So when you, when you accidentally or carefully make that decision and you're 20 years old, how does that affect you when you're 25 years old? Well, for me, it's meant that over the years, the royalty checks that come in from that record are larger than they would be had we not done that. So that means that when I select artists to work with, when I make plans to move out to Nashville, you know, crossing my fingers and hoping that it all works out, then there's income that I have established 10 years earlier that allows me to be a little more careful and considering of how to make decisions moving forward because I've accidentally or at the end of May's career purposefully paved my way so that way this income is substantial enough to make the next decision carefully. You know, May owns five out of our seven releases. And, um, you know, a lot of luck and opportunity that we had, now that's a blessing and a curse because... Since you can just use GarageBand and your Facebook account to put out music, some of the stuff isn't so great because everybody has an opportunity to do the same thing. They should maybe, you know, practice. and. That's an understatement. Yeah, I mean, unfortunately, that's part of it. But then on the flip side, you're going to be able to find new music without having to hear it on the radio or, you know, turn on MTV. I mean, when I was 12, the only way that I would learn about new music was through those two outlets, uh, sure. MTV and, and radio. And that... I mean, I haven't turned on MTV and I haven't deliberately listened to the radio to find new music in a very long time. I'm feeling hurt, Dave. What was that? Because <laughs> this is on radio. 
Well, <laughs> I mean... It's true, because, of course, just as this show also goes out as a live stream, it goes out on the net, it goes out as a recording, it goes out as a podcast, not just the live. Right, and, and that's exactly where you have adapted or even had to adapt to meet the audience that you have or the audience that you want. It's by finding three other ways to release the same content. Exactly. And making it available for people where they are. And that's the difference today. Um, you know, where people were in 1994 was radio and MTV. And today, there are definitely people listening to the radio. I mean, but now we have Spotify. Now we make our own playlists. We have Spotify radio and iTunes radio. We, you know, we've got Pandora. We've got RDO. We've got all these different ways that people communicate their favorite artists and their favorite songs, etc., in a way they share it and the way that they discover it. And that is just one tiny little facet of how the creative industry, I mean, technology and the creative industry have made leaps and bounds probably more than almost any other industry has in the last decade with all of these new advances. I mean, Twitter and just simply hashtagging to trend something and to, you know, like we used to take pictures and we used to put them in a book and that was the way that we would conserve our memories. And now we just take a picture with our, our smartphones and we put a hashtag before a phrase and now, you know, all of our memories and our photos exist in this virtual album, you know, via hashtags. These, these things are changing the way that creatives look backward and forward. And if schematic can every time something new is out there, every time something old is revisited uh, and still is you know important, every time someone asks a question about, well, what is the difference between a mechanical royalty and a publishing royalty in music? If we can always share these things and allow people to make decisions that better the future of their careers in, in the creative art industry, that's what Schematic wants to be. And as a creative, Dave, You've been uh -huh. in this business for 10 years plus. Mm -hmm. What are you going to be doing in, in another 10 years? That's a great question, man. Um, my, my personal goal is to um, be a full-time music producer. Um, I love, love, love working with artists, helping them understand the completion of their vision musically when it comes to a song or an EP or an LP. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, when I was 20, like I mentioned earlier in this conversation, uh, my ego was uh, pretty quick to defend itself and say, oh, no, I've got this figured out. I I'm right here. And as, as I've gotten older and realized how much I don't know, especially in regards to music and musicianship and engineering and production, like the musical production world is a customer service world. You're, you, you have to get inside, get very intimately involved with their vision and their mission and their creativity and their talent and their limitation, and you have to grow and expand and nourish all of that. And um, I love that. I've produced a lot of May stuff over the years, but it's so different than producing um, an artist outside of, you know, if, if I haven't written or played on it, it's like it gives me fresh ears and um, fresh perspective. And then my history and my musicianship and my experience over the years allows me to bring something to the table for these bands and for these artists uh, that hopefully makes their work better and more creative and more interesting if they're you know, asking me to do so. Um, whatever they want out of their record, um, that's what I want to provide and I want to exceed the expectation that we both have. 
I just love that so much. Like I said, I love being in the studio. I love being around creativity every day if I can. And um, that's what I want to do um, primarily with my career, you know, for the next decade and then some. Um, you know, I mean, this May train is uh, is boarding right now. We're going to be moving out of the station here in a few months. And we've got uh, a lot of uh, plans and tricks up our sleeves that we'll be sharing, you know, during the tour, before the tour, after the tour. Uh, so May's going to be a part of my life moving forward. Um, I do love to write music so often that maybe not everything is going to make it, uh, you know, to May or to schematic or you know, I write with other people for their projects as well. I love songwriting. I do it all the time. And um, I love experimenting to my personal unknown. So um, I'll work with pretty much anyone as long as I think that I can provide something of value. Um, so songwriting is a big part of my future. And then schematic is a huge part, meaning uh, the idea that uh, we're just creating this educational creative community for the future of artistry i want to see that like take legs and and run and provide people with what they need so if all these things you know kind of keep going then i think i'm going to have my hands full for a little while (laughs) the antidote's been speaking with dave elkins of both schematic and may dave this has been really interesting you share some really insights to the whole music industry and your music itself so thanks for joining The Antidote. Yeah, thank you for having me. I've, I've had a blast today. I appreciate the uh, thoughtful conversation and the questions, and uh, it gets me even more excited about the future.